Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the show for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants ideas and maybe a little dose of inspiration to help you enjoy your job and raise more money, especially during the pandemic. Today, I'm very excited to share an excerpt from a training film that we made a few years ago with the Gravitas, Confidence and Voice Coach, Caroline Goider. Caroline is the best-selling author of several books, including Gravitas and, most recently, Find Your Voice. In episode 12 of this podcast, we shared Caroline's advice on how to win the hearts and minds of your supporters and colleagues. And in today's episode, we're looking at how you can increase your poise and how to handle difficult situations in your fundraising, whether those conversations are with people outside or inside your organisation. Just to be clear, we conducted this interview more than a year before the pandemic began, at a time when most important conversations happened face-to-face rather than remotely. Nevertheless, I think you'll find the kinds of challenging relationships that Caroline describes remain common, and her insight to help you perform at your best is still spot on. So, hello, Caroline, can you hear me? I can indeed. Hi, Rob. Hi. Um, thank you so much for making time again. I know several months ago you, you helped us with some ideas to do with uh, winning hearts and minds. And thanks for making time yet again at the, at the end of a, a long day of, of coaching or training. One of the topics I really liked and I think is really so important in fundraising, in the book I think you refer to it somewhere as this idea of having some grace under fire. So there are times when life is not easy for a fundraiser. There are stressful meetings. There are some difficult people we have to work with internally and externally. What are two or three of the the, the kind of types of character or types of difficult complain or a situation that fundraisers seem to have to deal with that you've noticed? I think, I mean, when I talk to fundraisers, my sense is that it, there are so many different dynamics that fundraisers are dealing with. And I think that also charities are often quite complex, almost, they're almost, there's almost a family dynamic within some charities, isn't there? There are lots of different complex characters and, and then fundraisers are going out of that kind of family into other complex relationships in terms of corporates or major donors or trusts and all of that kind of difficult systemic stuff so fundraisers are constantly dealing with um, challenging relationships difficult conversations situations where they might be thrown into turbulence and I think the metaphor that really interests me in this situation is the pilot of the plane because as a fundraiser you're really piloting for the audience you're talking to your charity's plane you you represent the charity and when you hit turbulence within that relationship, when there's a difficulty, when there's a challenge or a question, it, it's how you respond to it that they're looking at. And, you know, if I'm on a plane and we hit turbulence, what I want more than anything is for the pilot to be calm and to have exude a sense of presence and just an understanding that they will get through this and that they will look after their passengers no matter what. And I think for me, that's what grace under fire means. And when someone has the capacity to stay calm and centered in that situation, I think they, everybody sees them in a, in a way that has respect and trust. Mm. And um, think of my own experience. I have my moments when I manage to do that. 
and definitely I've had my moments, especially when I was working full time in a particular charity, where kind of I was running on empty, and it was the fourth thing that day or the fourth thing that week, and at that moment I did not manage to have that poise and and calm. It's so hard, isn't it, when you're when you're embedded within an organisation? Because we're both consultants. It's so much easier as a consultant because we know we can walk in and walk away. And as soon as I've, you know, when I worked at a drama school, as soon as you're in that relationship, that kind of family dynamic, it's so much harder. And that that's where there's a lovely model from a woman called Virginia Satir, who was a family therapist. And it, it's a great way to unpick dysfunctional relationships. It's why I think it's a really great model to help within organizations. And she basically talks about kind of five archetypes of communication, four of which are quite unhealthy and one of which is the antidote, you might say. So the, the four negative archetypes, I think if I think about working at Centra, I certainly saw all of these. The first one, which is really is a beast actually is is the blamer and i can i can do the blamer now people generally don't do this in meetings but you do get the sense of a character who is feeling some kind of fear about something so what they do is they talk in quite a staccato way and there's a sense that everybody else is to blame and it's not them and they're always looking for someone else to pin stuff on and, and to make others feel bad about something that hasn't happened. And it's never their fault. It's right. always somebody else's. And there's, there's always this staccato, quite driving energy. And it makes everybody else feel stressed within about 30 seconds of that person entering the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and- we know that character very well. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, we, we can see the people around us who can do that. Um, if we're really honest, sometimes we can admit that actually that is within us too. We all do. The, the point of an archetype, isn't it? So what's the, what's the next one? So I th- if, we, if we sit with Blamer for a bit, actually, because I think that's a really important point, Rob, that we all do all of these. And so it's not just about noticing in other people. It's about also really tuning into it ourselves. Right. And when we hit Blamer or when we notice Blamer, if we've hit blamer ourselves, then it's really important to take responsibility because blamer says it's your fault, you're bad, I'm okay. Yeah. And so first of all, just center yourself, get calmer, go and have a cup of tea, you know, look out the window, come back and find a way to have a common, a shared responsibility yeah. and not to try and shift it. Yeah. Um, if someone else is doing it to you, it's, First of all, find a way to help them diffuse the fear a little bit yeah. and then help them to find a common purpose. Because as soon as we're shifting the blame onto other people, we're closing down any kind of dialogue. So you have to find a way to open it back up again. So um, I read something quite recently about taking responsibility. I've always been told take responsibility. And in my head, I've said, yeah, but what if it genuinely is? All objective people would say that person messed up or were obviously lazy or rude and I obviously did all of the right thing sometimes that is still true but the, yeah does taking responsibility mean I've got to pretend it was my fault when it really wasn't and and what this particular uh, I think it was a, a blog or a book was saying to me is take responsibility doesn't mean you're taking the blame on you but taking responsibility does mean 
you're taking back some responsibility that there's something you can do about it. And as long as you were blaming, focusing on it, on what someone else has done, your power has gone because all your energy is out there. They're bad. Take take responsibility that even if it was someone else's fault, probably wasn't all their fault, probably you were, but even if it was, responsibility means you're having some potential to do something about it. It's kind of chaos theory, isn't it? In the sense that in any dynamic, once we're in that dynamic, we have, we're having an effect. And exactly, it's kind of owning the effect we're having. And I like the idea of just going first. You know, it's a lovely, I was taught it in NLP, actually. If someone's being really rude to you, you could just be rude back, or you could go first and be polite and charming and respectful. And they might still be rude, (laughs) but what might happen is that you might find they soften and they become more charming and more respectful than they were. And either way, they started off being rude. So you might as well try going first and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So so in in that moment, finding a way not to react, but to choose how you're going to respond. Exactly. Exactly. So blame is a really toxic one. And what blamers tend to do to most people in organizations is to turn them into placators. So in Satya's model, she has someone pointing. There's lots of, her book is called People Making. It's very 1970s. I think it's out of print, but you can still get it on Amazon. And there are some fantastic drawings. And one of the drawings is the blamer pointing. And then the placator is kind of doing this. And we've all worked with placators. It's the person who says, yeah, of course I'll do that. Or, yeah, anything you want. Yeah, if that's what you want, that's, you know, that's great. And they go off and they do nothing. Because yeah. it's, it's all about, in the moment, placators want to, they're frightened, so they will do anything to make the situation go away. They'll give you anything you want in order that you'll leave the room. And then they won't do what you want, because actually all they wanted was for you to go. And so blamers set up a situation in sales. It's called happy years, but it's basically the same thing where they don't really get the truth. They just get a kind of um, a face saving exercise. And so nothing ever changes because one person is going, you've done this wrong. The other people are going, well, we'll try and change it. And then you just cycle through that pattern over and over again until everybody leaves. Very good. So what can we do? If we recognise that in ourselves or we see the pattern, is there a, um, a, a quick tip for, ha- for how to get out of it? Or we, do, you, do you want to do, do all four of the archetypes and then a, a way to get out of all of them? I think it's probably good to think about placators quickly and then we can move on to the other two. I think with placators, what's really important is that you have to make people feel safe and you have to listen to them. So... Uh, you know, as someone who is quite task focused, something we talked about last time, I've learned that if I don't slow down and soften, um, cases won't really say what they think. And so it's finding a way to make people feel relaxed and safe and asking the right questions and really finding out what they want and really finding out what they think and taking time to be okay with that and not be judgmental. And, and that, that's the point where things will change. So initially we might feel like we're doing our best to send those signals. It's just that this person has been so badly stung by another colleague or something that happened to them in their life last week that just doing it a bit, what we think would be enough for us, may not be it 
and to, to persist in and being present and sincere in sending that signal that it is safe and you genuinely uh, are open to hearing what's really on their mind. And you found that if you if you hang in there and, and sincerely send that signal, often a blockader can kind of cut through this facade. Well, you get to something that's really authentic. And at that point, you can start to unpick mindset because often the placator's belief is nothing will change. Nothing. It's always been like that here. Nothing will ever change. So I might as well just smile and say I'll do it. But it's never going to change. Yeah. And so then you have to unpick mindset and, and go from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. There's a great book by Carol Dweck on mindset, if people haven't read it. And a lot of the stuckness in relationship and in organizations comes when we believe it's never going to change. So I think that the way to help locators change mindset is just to, is to tell stories, to give narratives of organizations, of charities that have seen change where it's worked. And that when placators believe that things can change, they, they no longer need to just play this role. They might actually then hook into the motivation that will move them forward. And then they're no longer in placator. They're in something more active. Very good. So at the heart of a lot of placating behavior is this lack of hope, lack of belief, belief of what's the point. I think that we can really break that is showing them the examples, either someone else within this organization that did do the thing and life got better for them, or of another organization where they, they did this thing and big progress was possible. You find this kind of, it's a very powerful thing to find that social proof or those real examples. Uh, and that, you know, that can change the belief and that can change the behaviours of the placator. Exactly. And I'm sure you've come across the book Story for Leaders by David Pearl. It's really great if you haven't. And he talks a lot about the stories that organisations tell themselves and, ha and how you change that story. So that's Story for Leaders by David Powell. It's a really great book. Just in terms of if you're going to help them shift mindset, just what is the story that this organization wants to be telling itself? And, and, how, do we, and how do we tell that story? Now, I know that is the, you know, the real turf of many good fundraisers. It's in this particularly stuck um, placator moment that it can be very powerful to shift mindset as well. So you might be thinking of it, out there in terms of the story of the organization have you thought about it about internally because that that can be really powerful too uh, in my experience fundraisers understand that they're going to have to work hard to make a good case or find the stories for donors but at some level what holds us back if we're in a a, a larger organization that has quite silo mentality where not all of the other teams seem to really be trying as hard as they could be to help fundraising succeed. Some, some of what holds us back from bothering to, to do the find the story or work harder at the kind of internal selling is this thing, well, why should I have to? We're all, <laughs> we're all trying to, to kind of you know, help the elderly or we're all trying to protect children from abuse here. Why should I have to work so hard to help the colleague in this team? But again, in that moment, it's that story you tell yourself that I shouldn't have to. That's exactly. your responsibility of doing what actually what it would take to persuade someone. It's, it is literally that self-awareness, isn't it? And we all get stuck. We all have our fixed mindsets about stuff. And again, back to NLP, I, I was taught something really useful, which is as soon as you notice yourself saying, why do they always 
the they is powerful because that's telling you that you have objectified that part of the organization yeah. and the always is powerful just not not in a good way spots the moments where you say they always do that because that's you are in fixed belief land at that point and we all do it and when you clock it change it unfix your mindset because nobody always does anything Hi, it's Rob, and I just wanted to jump in really quickly to let you know about the Bright Spot Members Club, which is where we publish the full learning bundle that Caroline helped us create. Rather than have me explain, I wanted you to hear from one of our members, Hannah, who joined in March 2020 and who's made use of the resources ever since. She's had a fantastic year, which has included doubling the income for her small arts charity compared to the year before COVID, and she credits the club with helping her to make this progress. Here's what Hannah said about why she's a member. Um, I think this way of learning for me just fits in much better with the with my workload. You've got so many different resources online that you can just tap into when you need them. And so many different experts that you've brought to your programmes that actually, I think I would struggle to be able to persuade my board of trustees to spend hundreds of pounds sending me on a, a three, four day training course when actually there's really good value for money in in your series. And Rob, you bring some really fantastic speakers and professional fundraisers to your series. And, um, you know, it, some of the sessions may be very short, but actually that really suits my style of learning. So I think actually, you know, I, I would say to someone, just, just give it a go. If you'd like to find out more about how the club works, go to brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. For now though, Back to the interview, as Caroline and I continue to discuss the habitual and often unconscious language patterns that can affect our stress levels. And again, I I recognise this, a lot of the time I'm fine with this, but in the moments of greatest stress, that's when I hear myself trotting out, that's typical, why can I never? And it's in in that moment I tell myself a lie that is a a false generalisation, and in that moment, that language spirals me into a place of stress and and lack of hope that, that stuff can get better and if anyone wants to read up more about that then there's a really good book all about resilience called grit by angela Ooh. duckworth i'm writing that down now. grit by angela duckworth and there's a really interesting chapter there about the most resilient people watch their language and they tell the truth it, it doesn't mean they walk through the the living room and there's lots of children's toys still on the floor and that <laughs> doesn't mean they think, oh, I'm so pleased there's no mess here. But it does mean they don't say, oh, it's, why is it such a rubbish tip? Yeah. Why is it a pigsty? In the, in the moment that you can do an extreme word, like that man on Strictly saying, it was a disaster. It, was, it wasn't a disaster. There was, no, there was no tidal wave. All that happened was someone got their footwork messed up in the dance. But in the moment you call it a disaster rather than messed up footwork, or you call it um, a, such a tip here rather than there are some toys on the floor, then you get hooked into the story and the lie by the language itself unconsciously and you take away your power to just get on and do something about it. So much so, exactly. Yeah, it's so powerful, isn't it? And it is that, it's just clocking it. When we clock it, we have control. Yeah. So um, the book there is called Grit. I highly recommend it by Angela Duckworth. Um, so, so far, Caroline, you've talked about two of these archetypes, 
that we notice in others, but actually, if we're really honest, sometimes they appear within ourselves, especially in moments of stress. What, what, what's the third one? So the next one that shows up a lot in organisations is, is she calls computer. And bear in mind that this was the 70s. She's, she rests in peace. She's not around anymore, Virginia Satis. So I don't know whether she would call it computer anymore because computers are everywhere, aren't they? But they weren't in the 70s. Um, and computer is, it, it's the person in your organisation who is maybe finance, but they tend to be quite analytical and quite left-brained, which is slightly old brain science, but just go with me. And they're they're very logical people. There's not much uh, emotion or energy. And they like to do things step by step. So I have a a coach in the US called um, uh, Denise, who says basically that when she asks an engineer or a brain scientist, you know, tell me about quantum physics, they'll say, well, if you start with the Big Bang, and she, you know, it's like, no, please don't start with the Big Bang. And four hours later, they're they're kind of getting to, you know, and then 30 million years ago. And it's it's a very process-driven, very analytical, very logical approach to life. And it says, I'm feeling a bit frightened, therefore I will cut myself off from any emotion. So they'll start meetings with things like, so looking at the agenda, we need to focus on our um, KPIs for the next quarter. And going forward, we will need to analyze our, you know, and it, it becomes really deeply unengaging. And we all do it a little bit when we're frightened, when we want to hide behind the facts. And what we have to do is kind of let go of the fear and be able to be more authentic, more honest about what we're really experiencing. Um, So I would do it if I was feeling nervous and needed to impress someone and I might find myself talking too much or, you know, showing off about something I'd learned. And actually that's, it's completely meaningless. It's not helping me. It's not helping them. It's much better for me to acknowledge that I'm frightened and to be more authentic and more connected to the other person, not shut myself off. Mm -hmm. I think the difficulty for computer people is that they're often not very self-aware. So um, I know I'm going into computer when I go into my head, when my voice gets a bit flat. How you help someone become less computer when they're not aware of it is a really tricky one. They get sent to me because someone will say they're not very engaging or their voice is a bit flat when they speak. I think that the thing I would say for people dealing with computers is see if you can get to know the person beyond their work life. You know, see if you can take them out for a coffee, see if you can find out what they really love. Because often when you find out that they love collecting, you know, old stamps or something or maps or, you know, they like walking in the Brecon Beacons, then a different person shows up and that's the person actually you want to encourage when they present or when they go into a meeting. Hmm. It's getting them to take the mask off to some extent. Yeah. And, and at some level, you just seeing that, that, that varied and more human side to them will help you have a way in to like or respect or see their warmth more. And as, as soon as you perceive it, probably your energy will change and you have probably some greater chance of having some rapport with them. So anything at all to get out of that meeting room uh, potentially can help both of you. 
Exactly. And I suppose where fundraisers are meeting these people is likely to be in the big corporates. You know, if you go in to meet a CFO or someone who's very high up in IT, often CEOs have been CFOs. You know, those kind of people are very process driven. They can be very analytical. They can be quite cool in their response to you. And so, yeah, get, 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 see if you can get to the person underneath. See if you can ask the questions that will unlock them. Um, very good. So there's, there's that person who's, who's doing process, they're speaking flutter, they're, they're thinking in their head. Um, and if we were coaching our, ourself, really, it, it's realising that there is great value in knowing process and knowing numbers, knowing KPIs, but sometimes we tense up and think that is the main game. Whereas actually what we need to bring to a certain team meeting or a certain meeting with a cor corporate actually paradoxically is our human playful warmth side, uh, our connection side rather than our task side, kind of the awareness of that and choosing to be flexible and having the courage to let, let out the other instead of the defense mechanism of, of going to task. That, that's a thing that um, you coach people to do, but if we're coaching ourselves, maybe just kind of, acknowledging that that might but maybe reading your book or listening to your downloads that might be the thing we need to to find a way to do more and in fact although we haven't done the fourth one the the way the antidote to all of these virginia sati calls the leveler and and what she says is that you just need the freedom to to see what you see to hear what you hear to feel what you feel and to say what you think and I, I just think that's, I didn't really get it at first. I didn't, I didn't really understand how profound it was, but it is just say, that, say one, one more, one more time. It's just, it, she calls it the, the four freedoms or the five freedoms. I think, you know, that the ability to be present in a space, to, to see what you see, you know, to, to, to acknowledge that is true for you, to hear what you are hearing, to feel what you're feeling and to say what you think. And if you don't understand to ask, so it's a complete um, truth, you know, a, a truth to your experience in the room. And God, it's powerful. I, I was working with a, a very senior client in the US. Well, she was in London, but she's from the US. And, and her chief of staff said, look, you know, when you're coaching her, what she really needs is a critical friend. She said, everybody tells her what they think she wants to hear. And at that level, people basically lie to you. She said, what, what, you know, basically what we're paying you for is to be honest. You've got to tell her what you think. And it, it was just a reminder of the power of those freedoms that actually we think we're supposed to show up a certain way and say the right thing. And that's most people don't want us to say the right thing. They want us to say what we think. Now you have to do it gracefully and you have to do it empathetically. And you don't always say exactly, you know, you don't say everything. You, you're quite careful about what you choose you say the thing that is going to help someone move forward. So you don't say, I hate your dress. You know, you don't say that was a really stupid thing to say. You say in my game, I think you need more passion when you speak. And I think that will help you. So you, you do it as a critical friend. But I think when we find those freedoms, when we show up as what she calls a leveler, actually everybody else relaxes to some extent because we're being honest and authentic. Yeah, certainly. I, I, I think of um, I've been studying leadership a lot in the last two years and I've interviewed more than 20 leaders. 
the best five or six. There was one quality all, all of them had in how the energy I get from them and the way I, I see their teams and sometimes big departments are so hardworking and loyal to, to do their very best for what this leader is trying to achieve. Those top five or six, or this, this realness and this authenticity and this, this sincerity, they, they sincerely care about their people. Obviously, they care about the mission, but this other thing, they sincerely care about their people. And, but the, that is so clear because of how real they are and how authentic, rather than kind of hiding behind this, this mask of needing to, wanting to be seen a certain way. That's the quality, I, I would say, that stands out most in those top six of the 20 I, I interviewed. And, and just you talking about uh, Satya's language, the leveller, I, I think I've realised that that's the thing they're doing. It's it's something that seems so simple, and it's it's that kind of simplicity that's actually incredibly profound. You know, it's it's simple and it's complex, and and I think we we come to it when we are just really tuned into ourselves and really self aware. And and it's back to what I was talking about last time, which is really about finding practices that help you tune into your emotions, that help you understand how you're showing up. And, you know, that could, as you, as you said last time, you know, that could be going for a run or it could be learning to sing or it could be playing a musical instrument. It could be painting. It's a practice that you do beyond work that gets you into a centered present flow state. That's the stuff actually that feeds into work because it allows us to be more whole, you know. Yeah. And I think we should show up as the whole person at work. I think, and I know in corporate life, that's not always easy, but as you say the people who do are the people we notice for sure yeah well it's it's really um it's so marked when someone has found a way to let themselves do that and do it do it well again linked to something we said last time this theme of vulnerability but the paradox is in letting go and not trying to project a certain image and always have all the answers and being willing to say i don't know what do you think Exactly. In that moment, the vulnerability, it, it, it's, it takes a bravery to let go. But the paradox of it is, my goodness, your power then to influence your others for good dramatically increases because you let go. And it's back, you know, that Marianne Williamson idea that, you know, as we let our energy shine, then other people are freed to do that as well. And, and in some in lots of corporate situations, everybody is hiding because everybody is frightened. You know, whether you're going into a meeting with someone external or whether it's within your own organization. And so if you're leading the meeting, I mean, Nancy Klein's book, Time to Think, is a really good book to read on all of this. It's, it's, it's how you create a space where people are able to speak and all voices are heard and people are able to listen. And, and if you can do that then you won't have these archetypes showing up. You'll have levelers showing up. And that's when stuff changes, because mm. people tell you what they think. So there you have it. I do hope you found our conversation helpful. If so, please do remember to subscribe to the podcast today so that you never miss an episode. For a full transcript and a summary where we mention the various books that we discussed, do go to the podcast section of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. As I mentioned earlier, this was an excerpt from the Grace Under Fire video learning bundle that I created with Caroline for the Brightspot Members Club. 
It's one of more than 45 training films available in the club, alongside the masterclasses and group coaching sessions that we arrange each week for fundraisers in the club. If you'd like to find out more about our training and inspiration club for fundraisers, or to dip your toe in and try for just a month, go to brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. Just before I finish, I'd like to say a huge thank you to everyone who's left us a kind review on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, and everyone who's been spreading the word about this show to colleagues and on social media, so that this content can reach and help as many charities as possible this year. And Caroline and I would love to hear what you think about today's episode. We're both on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Caroline is at Caroline Goider, that's G-O-Y-D-E-R. And I am at Woods underscore Rob. Thank you so much for listening today. Best of luck. And I look forward to sharing another episode of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast with you very soon. Thank you.